All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog in the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff, done right. Well, coming up, the Large Scale Exercise 2023, or LSE 2023, the largest combination live and virtual warfighting exercise ever run by the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, ended on August 18th. For 10 days, more than 25,000 service members spread across 22 time zones worked through complex scenarios to test how the fleet can simultaneously synchronize global naval operations against multiple threats. We were on the scene in Norfolk and North Carolina to see some of the operations and talk with service members taking part. We'll hear directly from sailors and Marines about what they've experienced. But first, a look at this week's naval news. Admiral Michael Gilday on August 14th relinquished his post as the Chief of Naval Operations, and Admiral Lisa Franchetti, the current Vice CNO, became Acting Chief. Franchetti, along with the senior officers of the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Army, has not been confirmed by the Senate due to the ongoing blanket hold on top officer nominations by Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, speaking at the relinquishment ceremony held at the U.S. Naval Academy, noted more than 300 officers are now unable to fulfill their new duties because of Tuberville's actions. The amphibious ships Bataan and Carter Hall, with Marines of the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, passed through the Strait of Hormuz August 17th to enter the Persian Gulf. The movement is part of a larger show of force by the U.S. in response to Iranian attacks and seizures on merchant shipping in the region. U.S. Air Force F-35A Joint Strike Fighters and the destroyer McFall are also among the additional U.S. military forces now in the Gulf region. Marines aboard the ships are being readied as possible armed escorts aboard merchant ships passing through the strait and operating in the Gulf of Oman. Fresh off taking part in the large-scale exercise, USS Mount Whitney, LCC-20, pulled into Istanbul, Turkey on August 18th with 6th Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Thomas Ishii embarked. It's as close to the Black Sea as the 6th Fleet flagship has been since November 2021, three months prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Huntington Ingalls on August 11th received a construction contract for the yet-to-be-named Arleigh Burke-class Flight 3 destroyer DDG-142, the third ship in the new destroyer multi-year procurement contract announced by the Navy on August 1st. Not included in that original announcement was that it also included construction contracts for the first two ships, the Thomas Kelly DDG-140 to General Dynamics Bath Ironworks and the unnamed DDG-141 to HII, for a total of three destroyers ordered in fiscal 2023. DDG-142 is considered an option ship for fiscal 2023. The MYP covers the years from 2023 through 2027, with each of those years also containing an option contract should funding be made available. And in new ship news, a keel ceremony was held August 17th for the Virginia-class attack submarine Tang SSN-805 at General Dynamics Electric Boat in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. 
in Pascagoula, Mississippi on August 19th, the destroyer Ted Stevens DDG-128 just launched on August 9th was christened at HII's Ingalls Shipbuilding. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right. Well, as we said, uh, we were down to see the large-scale exercise, or part of a very small part of the large-scale exercise down in Norfolk and North Carolina. I was able to attend a day-long media event hosted by U.S. Fleet Forces Command and its commander, Admiral Daryl Caudle. Now, Caudle was joined by his fellow four stars, Admiral Sam Raparo of the U.S. Pacific Fleet and Admiral Stuart Munch, who's commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe, where they all held a press conference. Caudle at the conference laid out the scale of the exercise and what it was hoped would be accomplished. And we're trying to impact 25,000 sailors. You may have been given that number. The exercise command group alone to pull this off ranges uh, between four and 800 people to actually go run this event. So it, it is robust depending on how you, or what, where I place them in that count. But you can imagine a, a, a several hundred people are part of this exercise control that are trying to put the injects into the scenario as it's in run to stress things that are tied to our objectives, our learning objectives, and what we're trying to get out of it. So that's the overall idea. So you can think of a, a again, a, a, uh, a ever-increasing percolating event uh, in a certain area of responsibility. Uh, at the same time, another competitor is taking advantage of that and trying to uh, gain control or do something else at the same time at a global level. So that's, that's the general concept here. So as we're watching one thing and in, in the other adversary, if you will, is trying to see are we taking the eye off the ball. And so that's what stressed it at the global level because there can be multiple instantiations in different AORs where that's occurring. Now, you, you lay something like what I just described over the real world, no kidding, what we're all doing. Okay, I'm running, no just, just like the other two fleet commanders are running real world operations here. You know, no one's taking a pause out there in our adversary space to let us go do LS-23 on the, you know, give us, give us two weeks, please, without doing anything so we can go do this and learn from it. So you naturally have the friction of your real world day-to-day -day battle rhythm being stressed with what we're doing here with LS-23. So from a personal time and commitment effort on our staffs, this is at the peak of really one of the most challenging things we can do to that, to that learning group. So that's extremely hard. To your specific point of communications, as you know, comms are not perfect. So I have to do very little for things to degrade. You know, there's not a day goes by that we're not getting a report that some, you know, C5I system is down. So that naturally is occurring and we're working through that. So we let that roll. But at the meantime, we're actually attacking those spaces, you know, through cyber, space, uh, information warfare, networks, C3 communications, uh, command and control communications, as part of the exercise itself to actually test specific things and how we devolve, how we do continuity of operations, how we shift to other networks, how we test uh, things like virtual secure enclave, where we, you know, we go to a very secure communication system. So that's all just part of the fabric of the exercise to make sure that those devolution TTPs and procedures are tested and we learn from which ones worked and which ones did not work. At the tactical level, by the inherent nature that some of our units have operation overmatch uh, hardware installed or communications as a service is part of that, 
So we naturally get sets and reps on testing our overmatch capabilities as well. And at this classification, I can leave it at that. But as you know, that can span multiple networks, multiple communication systems. And to the sailor on board, that should all be seamless on the information they're getting from those networks. A major concept LSE 2023 was to test out was DMO, Distributed Maritime Operations. Very simply, the idea is to spread out naval forces in multiple directions where they're able to strike targets at the same time. Caudill talked about DMO and disaggregated operations and how it all fits into a live virtual constructive or LVC environment able to display real-world information along with the exercise scenarios. We do a lot of disaggregated operations. I mean, we just put the uh, Vuitton um, uh, ArgMU out, uh, deployed about, I don't know, a month ago, and we immediately have the, the large deck and the LSD over in Central Command and the LPD over in, remaining in, in European Command. While not distributed maritime operations, more disaggregated operations, the actual uh, capabilities it takes to command and control those forces when they're in that posture are being tested. And so, of course, we split up care strike groups all the time with the crew does to go do different missions and, and do the same type of things. But the sets and reps necessary to, to actually, for a commander in one AOR, talk to another commander in another AOR and be able to employ that ship effectively on based on how it was certified and how we split out those forces on those those L-based ships is, uh, is being practiced every day. But I can tell you what the big game changer is from LSE 21 has been the advancement and the, the, uh, the capitalization and sourcing efforts from OpNav and the CNO to prioritize how we improve our live virtual constructive as you've already seen. So we're, we continue to be on a, a roadmap of our integration to be able to do that more and more effectively. So, you know, at one point you would see this was very localized. Like, so if an air wing went to Air Fallon, of course, they're, they're simulating those types of environments in that, that type of situation. If you go to our training centers and attack centers, you'd, you'd see it there. And then we kind of moved that out to the care strike group so that we can have synthetic geographies. And uh, so we can simulate a ship being anywhere in the world postulate red and blue forces on their tactical displays, their common operational picture, that advanced. Now we're seeing that in our own maritime operations centers. And then as we march further down, the next big step is to be able to do that uh, more organically with the air wing on board the actual carriers when we do that. So they get that on their tactical displays instead of just like perhaps at a Fallon type of event. And then the final place that we really want to get to you know, when we get the, the, our air uh, forces seeing these type of virtual constructive realities is in the information warfare. And uh, that more and more is a place where we are investing in, but we're not there yet, uh, such that the, the sailors and the officers that are in charge of information warfare systems can be part of that live virtual constructive environment where they're, they're immersed in an environment uh, virtually that we think simulates real wartime or hostile environments where they see that on those types of displays. And they can make recommendations to the Stryker commander about their emission control status, about how to transit most covertly, about how to posture their, their sensors and radars, about their tactical situation or tax set or understanding of the threat environment.
So the information warfare piece is kind of the last place that we really need to get the LVC technology uh, to the same level we have the tactical levels today. Wrapping up, Caudill also summed up the larger goal of LSE on a worldwide scale. It is easy for a country, any country, including the United States, to take our eye off the ball and get fixated on one threat. Okay, you can start worrying about one part of the world very easily. And you can see there's been examples of that in our recent history. And when you do that, um, the, our competitors notice. And before long, you're, you find yourself in a position that you're not equipped to actually handle how they have grown in the time we have taken our eye off of them. So large-scale exercise is a demonstrative way to let, put the world on notice that we're watching it all. And, uh, and we are able to, at, with our global force, operate anywhere in the world and, uh, and be a force for good there and that we're not going to let you kind of creep up on us again and find ourselves not be ready to respond to threats worldwide. Contrasting with the on-high strategic four-star view, we were flown by the Marines from Norfolk to Oak Grove Outlying Field in North Carolina, where a forward arming refueling point, or a FARP, had been set up to support Marine aircraft taking part in the exercise. We were able to get a look at one of the on-the-ground logistic units that facilitate combat operations during the exercise. Colonel Ginger Beals, commanding officer of Combat Logistics Regiment 2, talked with us about what was going on in that North Carolina field. In the background, you'll hear one of the big CH-53 Echo heavy lift helicopters that was getting refueled nearby. This is a forward arming and refueling point. And what it, what it does is it allows the Marines here to fuel and rearm the aircraft that come in that allow them to continue to project power forward of a, of a FOB or a, um, or a, uh, a um, installation in which they would have all life support, right? They would have all their fuel, they would have all their ordnance. Well, it allows us to do it in a more austere environment. It allows them to be expedient and allows for the, the pilots to be able to extend their range in which they're able to uh, operate. And so you will see, and the Marines that are here have been out here for like the last six days setting up and, and doing this. It also allows the pilots to go from here and land out on the, the, the boats, the amphibs that are out there and they can get their qualifications where they'll fuel and potentially then uh, deploy forward and use that as a platform that they execute off of. What are some of the things you're trying to stress when it comes to EAPO with this uh, exercise? Yeah, so it, it really is the naval integration and the relationship between the Marine Corps and the Navy and our relationships and our communications and how we communicate with one another. Um, it allows us to be in a more littoral environment operating in smaller um, detachments in a forward environment. That's what you're trying to stress, that communication? We are, we, um, the CLR2, is absolutely doing that because we are nested with the Navy and we have communications with them daily in our reporting so we know how, what the support is needed and how the support is gonna be provided from both the Marine Corps side and the Navy side. For us, it's going very well. We, we have worked through a lot of communications issues that we've had with the CSG and with the amphib ship that's out there, um, and we've gotten a lot better over the time that we've been here. Um, the interaction and the requirements that we have, like the Navy has supported us with life support coming off ship 
to shore where we are to our Marines that are back at Cherry Point. Could you give us an example of some of the calm issues that you were able to work through? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are there are some um, there are some new things that we're testing um, when you come when it comes to experimentation that they were out here working through trying to uh, work with a light system um, that allows us to communicate without having to do verbal. Um, and so it's all through light systems. So we were working through that. Um, we had some issues where there were uh, loss in communications between the two, and then how do you reconnect, or who do you reach out to then to, to connect? And we were able to work through that as well. And so we are providing support to Second Ma. However, we are communicating with USS New York, that's off, off ship, or offshore, and then uh, CSG-4. Even on this small scale, a lot of units are involved in the, in the logistics supporting the exercise. First Lieutenant Anthony Viteri, a combat engineer officer with Marine Wing Support Squadron 271, gave us a good idea of some of the units involved in supporting the forward arming and refueling point. What we're providing out here is power generation and uh, power distribution. So we've got some generators. You all pass our uh, life support area over south of us. And we also have a water purification point just off of the river. So we're also providing the water uh, to the Marines here. Um, as well as just overall safety control. So the difference here would be that normally the FARPs are operated by the MWSS Marines. Uh, for LSC, it's going to be it is the uh, ATSB Marines. So instead of Second Mall Marines, it's Second MLG, and they're out here just trying to get a feel for what it's like to operate a FARP. So we're uh, trading knowledge, teaching them because in the future fight, they might be the ones that are supporting us as well doing that. So as we uh, spread out more, we're gonna need more support as far as personnel and equipment. So making sure that multiple people are cross-trained on this is gonna support that. So we have the Marine Wing Support Squadron 271, who are providing, who's providing the life support, so that power generation, distribution, and water purification. We have Marine Wing Comm Squadron 28, who is providing communications between us and all the different sites across Eastern North Carolina. Uh, so they're the command and control element. We have uh, Max Two, who is part of the MMT team you've already spoken, uh, already spoken about, as well as all of the flying squadrons. Um, so we've got HMH-464, HMH-461, and currently on deck is VMM-365. So the stresses will be just how spread apart we are. So we're normally used to operating off of a more established area, more built up. Here we're trying to have a low signature and just keeping accountability between the different sites, keeping uh, just communication between each other. Uh, it's probably the biggest stressor, just as more spread out you are, less control you can have. Um, so you have to put a lot more trust in the people who are on deck, um, the s small unit leaders to uh, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to. We had uh, some electro spectrum uh, analysis done before we got on site, and we're having it done as we are on site. So we'll see basically what the site looks like when nobody's here, and then what it looks like while we're here, what kind of noises we're making. And using that studies, we'll uh, try to reduce that signature. So that's looking forward to seeing, like, this is what a FARP uh, emits. And then one, how can we replicate it to do maybe like a decoy FARP, um, as well as how can we reduce that to make ourselves less visible to uh, anybody who's looking for us. From North Carolina, we flew back to Norfolk and went aboard the aircraft carrier USS Dwight D. Eisenhower Pierside at Norfolk Naval Station, where Admiral Mark Miguez, commander of Carrier Strike Group 2, talked about the carrier, where it is, and where it has been in the workup cycle, and how the live virtual constructive technology at the heart of the large-scale exercise was also a key factor in preparing his strike group for its upcoming deployment. He spoke with us out on a windy flight deck. This is the flagship for Carrier Strike Group 2 of the USS Eisenhower. 
A carrier strike group, as all of you are familiar with, a carrier strike group comprises the carrier. We've got numerous escorts. Uh, in this case, we've got four DDGs and we got a cruiser, the uh, USS Philippine Sea, and then we have the air wing that's embarked as well. Uh, based out of Oceana, Woodby Island, Norfolk, Virginia, and down in Jacksonville as well with uh, all variants uh, type model series that you're used to seeing in a carrier air wing. So we started this journey coming out of a maintenance uh, phase about uh, September, October with uh, most of our units. However, the Eisenhower came out of its maintenance avail with a little bit of an extension and they got out in November. And we rapidly put the team together in January, went through a Warfare Commanders Conference and then we uh, hit the ground running. This uh, carrier in particular with the air wing went out in February and they executed a uh, what's called a uh, tailored ship training activity called TESTA. And uh, we did some blocking and tackling, kind of rudimentary basic phase events. The rest of the air wing did basic phase events and the rest of the strike group in reference to our DDGs and cruiser did a bunch of basic phase events. We put the whole team together about eight weeks ago. Uh, it was the first time we were able to get together and we did what's called group sale. And then we executed that, that's about nine days. And then finally, we had kind of our culminating event, which we call COM2X. And that COM2X resulted in this air wing, I'm sorry, this strike group being certified for combat deployment, uh, which is uh, upcoming in the fall. And so currently we are certified and uh, we, uh, we have a couple of minor little maintenance issues that you're seeing here on the Eisenhower. We are uh, redoing some non-skid on the flight deck we're also doing just some more preventative maintenance so when we push out, we're not asking for help on the backside once we get underway. We're expected to go to the 6th Fleet AOR, which is the UCOM, primarily the Mediterranean, and we possibly will go over to the 5th Fleet AOR and operate there as well, just doing normal deterrence and presence missions across the spectrum, executing National Command Authority for both uh, fleet commanders, the 6th Fleet Commander and the 5th Fleet Commander. And that's our current uh, laydown, and that's our current schedule as far as uh, what we know today. We are executing an LVC event that you're familiar with, LSC 23, large-scale exercise. But before that, during our COM2X, we actually executed LVC as well, live virtual constructive. We had our ships operating in the, in the environment, in the LVC environment, to include this carrier and our air wing uh, aircraft and we were plugged into the LVC environment. It's probably one of the most dynamic and most uh, stressing situations that we put our, uh, our watchstanders through and our air crew through, where we actually simulate in the training environment us being shot at by threat aircraft, threat ships, and threat uh, land-based, uh, uh, we we'll call them CDCMs or uh, cruise missile defense uh, threats that we could incur if we go into a combat operation uh, once we deploy. And so uh, this LVC, uh, live virtual constructive environment uh, that's been uh, re uh, refined over the years has gotten better and better and better. And uh, I got to see it firsthand as the commander of the strike group uh, being down in uh, the tactical flag command center, which you're gonna see here in a second. Uh, but uh, I, got to, I got to be there and watch this whole LVC thing come to uh, culmination. Uh, and it's a very powerful training tool we have, and we can actually do it tied to the pier, which is what you're seeing today. For uh, this particular exercise that we're in right now, LLC 23, uh, it's really not that much diff that not different from what we would actually do in combat. Uh, there are some nuances to it as far as uh, positioning 
and where we put where the LVC environment we're told to be, but it's not that much different. We would execute this uh, much akin to if we were underway in the Six Fleet AOR today. And as a matter of fact, the George Gerald uh, uh, R. Ford Strike Group is underway right now in the Six Fleet AOR, and we can literally see their tracks as we're in the virtual environment next to them, which is kind of neat. Our thresholds for success would be, you know, our support to the numbered fleet commander, in this case it'd be the 6th Fleet Commander, and uh, making sure that we provide him the combat power available that he needs when called upon. First, we're, we're in a defensive deterrence mindset and we're conducting presence operations, but as the scenario will unravel, we're gonna be put into a pretty stressful situation where we may have to obviously execute kinetic activity. The way that we're executing LLC 23 is really akin to exactly what we did for COM2X. Uh, we broke down COM2X into small bites. Like in other words, when we first started, we focused on a, uh, on, uh, a uh, fifth fleet kind of scenario, basically Iran. Then as we went through and got more proficient, we went and uh, tackled a Russian threat. And then finally, we wrapped it up with probably our most, uh, what we call peer-to-peer -peer threat, the Chinese threat. And all three of those were building block approaches to get to that level. What we're doing for LSE 23 is we're, we're actually having two major threats at the same time. We did not do that during COM2X. So that is a slight nuance, and it's, it's gonna give us exposure just in case this happens. Admiral Miguez also reflected on how the LVC technology has revolutionized how the Navy and Marines are training, not just in LSE 2023, but increasingly everywhere. I was a previous Air Wing commander, and then previous to that, obviously, a, a squadron CO. Uh, the monumental leaps that have happened since 2012, which was when I was at the 05 command level to today, are incredible, and especially over the last two years. Uh, this LVC environment is a game changer. Uh, it literally represents down to the tactical level uh, a individual sitting at a watch station and going through exactly what would happen. I, I would say 10 years ago we were not there. We didn't even, uh, we, our ships weren't even plugged into the LVC environment 10 years ago. Our aircraft were, were not uh, synced up in the LVC environment either. We had uh, ability to have data link between the airplanes and stuff like that and the ships, but to actually have a representative threat in the environment and you see something on your scope or you see something at your watch station that's actually flying right at you or being shot at you and you have to respond is something that we desperately needed and the technology's there and it's just getting better and better as the years have clicked on. So those are just some of the people we talked to uh, during this really busy day, um, you got a feel for for things from from really the four star level, literally the four star level, um, all the way down to a to a to a field out of North Carolina. Um, thousands of military people taking part in this exercise all across the world, twenty two time zones. Um, it's it's really the, the the scale of this is something they have not attempted, and what they're really trying to do is test and pressurize. The whole, to use their one of their favorite words, pressurize, um, to th their ability to cut across all these com combatant commanders who are used to operating within their own combatant commands, like this is like Indo-Pacific co Command or uh, European Command, Central Command, um, but they're all having to interact 
And can they do that? Can they do it effectively? Can they deal with multiple scenarios happening at the same time concurrently? And you know, where where are the weak points? Where what are the strong points? And how does this distributed maritime operations uh, concept you know play through in really uh, really difficult scenarios? Uh, and you know, it's it's a combination. Also, you know, a lot of the things that go wrong. Um, it's so complex. A lot of it's real things that go wrong. Uh, it's not just the stuff that they're introducing for the exercise. Um, down in North Carolina, we were talking to a young, um, one of the sergeants operating the fuel trucks. And he talked about, you know, the, 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 one of the problems they had with the fuel trucks was they didn't work to work right, right out of the box. Why not? Well, they don't really fill them up with fuel and run them very often. So, for example, a lot of the hoses were, were, were cracked, they found. Um, that was something they, they hadn't been hadn't been checking on, hadn't been testing. So maybe that's an area where, uh, you know, if, if you want this stuff to be ready to go at a moment's notice, it's got to be ready to go at a moment's notice, and some of it was not. But things, so, so there are things from the most minuscule, you know, a hose in a, in a fuel truck, all the way up to vast concepts of moving strike groups and um, serious communications around the world. So it's a, really the scale is immense. Yeah, Chris, I mean, I think this is uh, fabulous. I mean, one, the the roll-up in which you gave uh, uh, the audience, and two, the fact that you were able to be down there with a, a number of other media to help tell the story. But, you know, zooming out, I mean, this really is, and you hear it from the folks around the fleet, I mean, this really is um, quality, strategic, operational, and tactical level training. You mentioned the the hoses and, you know, the thing, you know, sailors and Marines doing their day-to-day job, um, commanders having to coordinate uh, among many different units in and out of their theater, and then strategically trying to figure out how to exercise the battle problem across a number of different fleets. Um, And this is what we expect in high-end competition, right? I mean, it, it is likely that if the Chinese make a move in uh, on Taiwan, it will not just be a Taiwan-only move, that it, there could be cyber actions that occur. It could be uh, timed with uh, um, bad behavior on the part of the Iranians or on the Russians. Um, you, you know, we are truly in a global um, competition in which uh, we are going to have to be able to coordinate and uh, conduct Um operations across a variety of different fleets you know our, our, the bad guys don't recognize the uh the opcon uh, of one fleet commander ver- versus the other and i think the navy knows that and they've known it for a long time um and being able to exercise again across all three levels is really important um and they've done it on a, a, a on such a great scale i mean the first one i was told was you know such a leap forward in how they used um what was already thought to be pretty good uh, live virtual constructive training but how they knitted that together. And then just the early feedback from this exercise has been uh, very positive. It, it is kudos to Admiral Gilday, who we mentioned at the top, turned over to uh, you know Admiral Franchetti. I mean, th- this is really what he had been pushing. His staff had been pushing very hard to connect these, to up our uh, the game of the Navy. So uh, I, I feel really good. And I, I hope, now the only thing I will say, the Navy, I think, did not do a good job last time of going to important stakeholders, the Hill, industry, others, and talking about the lessons learned out of uh, um, the the large-scale exercise. I hope that Admiral Franchetti will direct uh, the fleet commanders, um, you know, Admiral Cottle, Admiral Paparo, and others to go and do that better this time so that we can, you know, have a shorter 
uh, learning loop uh, and that they get to benefit from what we learned during this exercise. Well, I think they're already doing that. I mean, you know, people, people said repeatedly throughout the day that, uh, you know, LAC 21, 2021, um, there, there were a lot of problems with it. There it didn't, didn't always go the way they wanted to. This is, they also emphasized this is much larger, far more ambitious. Um, so they're trying to correct some of those mistakes and carry it much further. Um, but even this, uh, you know, to your point, this all-day media uh, event, which was which was pretty elaborate, um, you give them, you know, from my side of the world, you give them points for this. Um, you know, we'd certainly do appreciate seeing this stuff. Uh, they have to make it happen. Uh, logistics are not easy, um, and they they did make it happen. That's you know all part of getting the word out, um, getting people aware of what they're trying to do. Not just the enemy, or the peer competitors, but also people who who can support them and uh, and and make this happen. In the in the future, and it's uh, I, I I thought it was an impressive effort. Um, it's going to have problems. All communicate. One of the biggest problems historically with all military operations is the larger and larger and larger you get, the your your uh, communications, your command and control problems just uh, multiply exponentially. There's it's it's very difficult to control very large things in moving dynamic situations. And that's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to see what the problems are. Of course, they're problems. But uh, what are they? Try to understand them. Um, and again, this whole LVC environment, people repeatedly kept coming back to that um, about how uh, it's just like just, just like the real world. At least at least if you're sitting in a, uh, in a combat information center looking at your scopes, um, looking, looking at your screens. Scopes, I just dated myself, didn't I? Screen. Uh -huh. Um, uh, but it's just like the real thing. You know, it, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's such a leap forward for, I mean, it, it has, wasn't that long ago that the training that you did on the ships in a virtual environment was very low tech in the sense, I mean, you know, as, as compared to what you were able to play, you know, right. when you were off duty, right. I mean, and yeah. now industry has done such a great job of not only making the battle problems more realistic, but the technology and the uh, you know the whole experience for sailors and marines it, it feels real the the saying goes you fight like you train um and you know the the more realistic that training is the better prepared our sailors will be so i i'm pretty you know pretty excited about this and i look forward to hearing uh, more about it all right well folks that does it for this week as always our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the defense and aerospace group for their support the Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening and bye bye. Yeah.